Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. What day is today? Let me look and see. I've lost track of time. Oh my goodness. It's already Thursday, September 9th, 2020. Good God, how did it get to be uh, September 9th already? A headline in today's New York Times, just breaking news as I speak. Justice, Par- Justice Department sues Texas over its restrictive abortion law. That is apropos to some of the con- discussions we're going to be having with my next guest, who is no stranger to this show. I don't even know why I bother uh, having her introduce herself, but why not? That's what we do. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm an assistant metro editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. And she's a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and she's not afraid to express her opinions, and that's why we love her on the Ben Jarofsky Show. She has been coming on the show for two... I was thinking about this, Romana. Two... It'll be three years. Oh, wow. my goodness. I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I aired... I broadcast... Uh, rebroadcast one of our old shows. I do that on Monday mornings now. I just... I drop some old shows, because we have so many shows. We have over a 1,000 shows. And there was one from you in 20, 2019. Uh, it's just so freaky, the stuff that was on our minds two years ago. The world seems to be, in my humble opinion, declined uh, in many ways, which is weird, thinking that uh, we had President Trump then. But in some ways, I don't know, the world just <laughs> seems to be getting worse. Uh, all right, let's start at the top. Justice Department sues Texas over its restrictive uh, abortion laws. Interesting side note, uh, the spokesperson for the Justice Department was Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland, who, among other things, is known as having gone and graduated from the same high school as Ramana Hussein. He grew up half a block away from me. So he, we probably, he probably saw us, me and my siblings, playing when we were younger. He's around my mom's age, but my mom had us all before she was 30. So we're thinking, you know, when he was in grad school or getting his law degree, he was like coming to visit his mom. And so yeah, I saw you guys walk, hanging around. Walk by each other. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, Romano was telling me that earlier today there was a meeting at the Sun-Times and they were giving each other trivia questions. I wonder how many people in that room would know the answer. I wonder how many people in that room could answer this trivia question. Just name three people. It's not really a question. It's a challenge. Name three graduates of Niles West. I don't know. How many of them you think could do that, Romano? <laughs> me, because I, I graduated from Niles West. So I, just ha- I, just, I can just name three people from my class. It doesn't have oh, to be well, okay. famous. It doesn't uh, have to be anybody famous. But we we did. We you know Jewel Lloyd. She's a notable. Um, she was a WNBA player who was an uh, Olympic medalist uh, just a couple weeks ago. Then we have Merrick Garland, who was the Attorney General, and then we have me. Well, there's really more that than that. But <laughs> yeah, there's more. There, there's more. That, that's George, three. George, Pop, George Papadopoulos, who uh, made yes. headlines during uh, Trump's administration. Um, the guy in the college scandal, uh, uh, God, what was his name? <laughs> Singer. Uh, so yeah, we, we're, we have a lot of infamous people that come from Lincolnwood. I'm letting, I'm telling and you. Famous we're, people. we're a very small uh, town, but, uh, we do turn out a lot of notable people, I must say. And, and here's a subsection, uh, quiz for you sometimes, uh, staffers and readers name two sometimes staffers who graduated from Niles West High School. That's a challenge sometimes. And Ramada, you said, you, you, you that, remember you were saying there were certain people that showed up to shows that make an idea are nerds? Who's a bigger nerd than me? I can name two sometimes grads who went to Niles West High School. It's a cry for help. Yeah, I can Ramada. too. I can too. <laughs> there was, there was an older guy. I God, why am I forgetting his name? Blanking on his name, but he's a really nice uh, gentleman um, who works, like, you know, who does layout. And one time I was talking to someone about where I graduated from high school and he walks by and he goes, what? You went to, you went to Niles West? He goes, I did too. I graduated in 1968. So, and then, you know, another editor of mine, Paul Saltzman, he graduated from Niles East. And, you know, I I made fun of him because I told him his school, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't. (laughs) You know, it doesn't. It's a community college now. Anyway, there's a lot of people in Niles West, Niles North. Those are both from the same school, same district. So anyway, I, we digress. I, uh, Sorry. We digress. Let's, let's get back to the issues of the day uh, before I start talking about the good days at Everson High School in the 70s, um, <laughs> which were not that good. All right. Uh, so we've been talking about this a lot on the show, uh, and I alluded to it already with the headline in the, um, the New York Times, Merrick Garland, Attorney General, uh, Niles West grad, is uh, suing on behalf of the people of the United States, the state of Texas, for their, in my humble opinion, this is me speaking, not Romano, who's saying their utterly insane law they passed prohibiting uh, essentially outlawing abortion in the state, uh, state of Texas and deputizing, this is the really twisted, weird part about it, deputizing citizens in Texas, giving them the right to... Uh, to sue people who are abetting a woman uh, when she gets the abortion. They they can't sue the woman. This is part of the weird, twisted view of the Republican Party. Because, like, the woman, yes, she is ultimately the person who has decided, if you consider it murder, to do the murder. But they don't want to sue her because, I don't know, she's like an innocent or something. The Republicans are so weird and twisted, uh, in my humble opinion, Romana. There's just the way they, like, separate the woman. 
okay, so I guess the optics are better in their mind. If you, You're going to sue the woman's friend who takes her to the clinic and holds her hand while she goes through a mob of hysterical anti-abortion actors. You're going to sue the taxi cab driver who drives her there, doesn't even know where he's taking her. You're going to sue him. But no, the mother, we don't sue the mother because she's innocent and she doesn't know what she's doing. All right, that's just my initial take. What's your general thoughts about uh, the law? I I think a lot of people, especially women, um, have been talking about this law and just, um, you know, a lot of pro-choice advocates talking about this. Um, So, yeah, it's something that's definitely a talker. I think a lot of women um, are obviously talking about this. This is something that has just been, you know, one of the most discussed topics, I think, within the last few days. I can tell you me personally, I've been, you know, it's definitely upsetting. I think what happened in Texas for a lot of women, but I'm also mad at a lot, a lot of the liberals as well. And the language they've been using to describe the individuals who passed this law. Um, You know, I think this show's airing on 9-11. And one of the things, um, you know, a lot of Muslims have been asked about is how their lives have changed since 9-11. Um, a lot of us talk about like, you know, when you're living in a big city like Chicago, it's really diverse. But I think, yeah, it's, it's really diverse. So, you know, we might not necessarily deal with overt racism, but the rhetoric, watching the rhetoric in this country, um, Islamophobic rhetoric being passed as normal language is really disturbing. And so that's one of the things I think me and a lot of other Muslim people and a lot of actually other individuals who aren't Muslim who picked up on this um, during the um, discussions about the abortion law in Texas. So a lot of people were calling um, the people who passed this law, the Texas Taliban. And then people were also talking about Sharia, which is Islamic law. They're saying, Oh, look, Texas imposing, you know, Islamic law. One of the things a lot of me and other Muslims were pointing out is that actually in Islam, there are abortion laws you know, within the religious jurisdiction aren't that strict. You can get an abortion in many cases. So a lot of people are just offended. Like, why do you even have to, like, why can't you admit that this is white Christians who are passing this law? It's the same thing we've seen with, you know, people who are Trump supporters. A lot of people are like, oh, don't shame Trump supporters. Why? Because they're Christian and white. And it's the same thing. It's like you, when something wrong happens in this country, we equate it with what, we think of as foreign or as like the bad religious, the religion. And, you know, it's, that's one of the things that's really disturbing. I have to tell, I have to read a couple of tweets that I thought were very poignant written by Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, so there's this comedian who's actually based in uh, Chicago. His name is Vinny Thomas. He's South Asian. I don't think he's Muslim. So he basically had a really good tweet. It was um, liked 53,000 times. So I can tell you that a lot of people are feeling the same way. And he basically said, y'all can talk about the tragic policy in Texas without calling it the American Taliban. It's not the Taliban. It's our own special ideology. And the people responsible are Becca and James from your church youth group. That was like one tweet that was really popular. This other woman that I follow who's African-American, I don't think she's Muslim, but I I could be wrong. Her name is Waga Wate Wanjuki. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name right. And if I'm not, I apologize to her. But she had a thread and her her comments were liked by over 3,000 people as well. 
she said American Taliban is trending because white people don't know how to look at their racist country in the eye. If you have to use xenophobia and othering to make your point, you should just shut the F up. And then she continued and she said, dear white people, can you explain why a group is bad without compare, comparing him to the big brown men? No, shut up. And then she went, then she went on and, you know, she kept going on, but this is the last one I'll say. And she said, racism is behind the anti-abortion law and you respond with racism. This is literally why the American justice, social justice movements keep failing. Can't keep your racism away for one minute. So uneducated, you can't add anything useful or new to the conversation. Come on. Hmm. And so, and then like two Muslims that I know, one woman basically said um, to folks comparing the Texas law to Sharia Islam, Sharia slash Islam, Islam has more, more liberal view of abortion than the Texas law. And another woman um, I follow who's Muslim said, I'm once again asking y'all to stop making comparisons between what's happening in Texas and Islam. Abortion is not outlawed in Islam. And frankly, your Islamophobia is glaring. And that woman is Amina Akhtar. And the one before that is a friend of mine whose name is Mushin Haq. And she's also a journalist. So, and the other woman, they, the Muslim woman that I quoted is an author and she's written novels and stuff. So this is something that, you know, a lot of people, you know, we're seeing liberals use these words like Sharia and Texas Taliban. And we're like, why don't you just say what it is? And I don't like disparaging anybody's religion because I know what it feels like. But it's like, why don't you say what what is driving it instead of making it this seem like something that you think is the other? So that was just a part of the conversation that I think a lot of individuals are really upset about by watching liberals use the language that we find Islamophobic. I mean, it's it's like this happening with this is like something Christian white people were enacting. And then you start quoting the Torah or bringing Jewish people into it. It has nothing to do with them. And and not and nobody's saying that Taliban's great, but why are you even saying it's a why are you even saying Texas Taliban? Why do you say Texas Christians or Texas white people? I don't know. It's just well, it's just think, interesting. What do you think? It's beyond interesting. I think uh, there's something beyond to play inter- here. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and that's the thing. It's like you know everybody's talking about the anniversary of 9/11, and obviously you know people have been you know a lot of liberals are pointing out how you know the world has changed for a lot of American Muslims who, by the way, have been living here for years and how our lives have changed. And it's like, well, look at the rhetoric you use. I mean, Obama became, when Obama was running for president, it was like, it was called a slur to call him a Muslim. Like, why is that a slur? So, you know, it's like, look at the way you guys are using the language. And this is this is specifically, in this instance, it's pointing to all liberals who are upset with the Texas law. And it's like, no, why don't you call what it is? It's people who look like you white liberals who are enacting the law. It's not Muslim people. So I don't know. It's one of the things that stood out for me. And, you know, as a woman, it's um, also, you know, something that's really sensitive, I think, to a lot of women, um, the abortion, the pro-choice discussion. So, yeah, that's something that's one thing that really, I think, um, angered a lot of um, people who are like me. I can tell you that much. I don't know. What do you think is going on? when uh, white liberals uh, use uh, Taliban uh, or uh, Sharia law to um, malign the law in Texas, even though that law in Texas was uh, written, enacted, and signed by white Christians. I don't think there was one Muslim anywhere near. I got, and, and I, 
I I don't know Illinois, uh, Texas politics as well as I should, but I'm pretty certain there are no Muslim elected officials who are of the Republican persuasion in the uh, Texas state legislature. And I know the governor of the state of Texas, Abbott, is not Muslim. So what do you think white liberals are doing, uh, Ramana, when I, I, they play that game? I, I think they don't realize it, but they're just like, you know, again, pushing the fault away from people who look like them. You know, it's just like, like I said, it's just like people when, you know, when people come out in support of Trump, they're like, well, it's my uncle. Like, nobody wants to admit that Americans can be wrong. Like, it's this ideal that everything America does is right. And anytime something wrong happens, it has nothing to do with being American. And it very much does. You know, it's like it's like they don't want to admit that there are flaws and that people in America are flawed as well as other people overseas. And by me saying that, you know, not them using the text of Solomon is wrong. It's not me saying that I endorse the Solomon. I'm just saying that why do you have to use a foreign group to describe your anger at what's happening? Why can't you say that it's actual Americans who are enacting this law and that they're using their religion, the religion, you know, that is like seen as inherently American to impose their law? So don't bring somebody else's religion into it. So that's why it's offensive. I just think, you know, it's just, it's kind of like White Lotus. Like they don't realize that they're being racist and xenophobic. So I, it's the same thing. And that's why, you know, a lot of people get annoyed with white liberals. It's like they think they're like really smart and they think they're really um, cutting edge by using these terms. But they don't realize that they're offending a large group of people. Uh, I am uh, at a loss here, as you know. I don't. Uh regularly follow twitter if, if if you don't send it to me i probably won't see it on twitter so uh so i'm asking this question out of utter ignorance and i apologize for my ignorance up front what has been the response of the white liberals when they're called out uh, for uh, using taliban to describe something that white christians have done I didn't I didn't really I didn't really follow to see what their response was but I think Martina Navratilova I think she's I don't miss I'm probably mispronouncing her name sorry I don't follow tennis but she's the one she's one of the ones that you know said something about Sharia law coming to Texas and I don't know what her response was but um I don't think I paid attention to what the response was but I did see and you know and this includes a lot of white people just saying that why do you have to use you know, other people that had nothing to do with this law into this conversation. Why bring it into this? So it was something that I think a lot of people were noticing. I was going to call someone out that I knew on Facebook who was like, you know, posting all these like commentary about the Texas Taliban, but I was like, forget it. It's not even worth it. So I don't know. I kind of wanted to tell them privately, but I'm, I'm just hoping that they saw the pushback to it. But a lot of times I think a lot of people don't see or don't care to see the pushback well i think that one point that was made uh that's like a distant cousin a far distant cousin to what you described uh is a point that uh some liberals and lefties have made and that is that the same people in texas who are decrying what the taliban uh are doing to women in afghanistan are turning right around and supporting oh yeah uh, Governor Abbott, when uh, he signs this insanely punitive uh, anti-abortion law, 
that turns oh, the yeah. citizens of Texas into, into deputies. So I think that is like a, a distant cousin to just taking anything that's evil and just slapping a Muslim name on it and saying, <laughs> well, now you get my exactly. point, right? I, I, I saw some funny memes too of like women in Afghanistan because you always, you know, hear about white saviors going, oh, what are we going to do about the women in Afghanistan? They're treated so bad. So I saw memes of women in Afghanistan saying, what are we going to do about the American women treated so poorly? So, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, people need to realize that their country is flawed too. You know, we might have these ideals that we talk about, but we have flaws too. And I think it's just, it's just very damaging when you have to make it seem like it's something that's only you have to like compare it to some other group that has nothing to do with what what laws happen. Why don't you talk about the problem at hand? So that's so I think a lot of people did notice that, and you know, obviously some people didn't, but it's just a converse. It's just something that I noticed, and people like me noticed. Well, I think that uh, really also, uh, how do I put this? And I don't want to offend my dear friends. I have a lot of white liberal friends, uh, and um, I do too. <laughs> In fact, I'm just going to say this right now, Ramana. Some of my best friends are white liberals. How about that? Uh, so are mine. Uh, and as Ramana knows by now, there's a difference between a white liberal and a white lefty. <laughs> I know. Uh, she's passed that test. Um, but yeah, I listen. <laughs> these Twitter fights, which you know. Again, I don't really follow that closely, but they do expose like people use shorthand and ex when they use shorthand, when they boil it down to like a word or a phrase, they expose a lot of biases that they have, whether they realize they have those biases or not. And I'm just wondering if the white liberals, when it's pointed out to them, have a typical white liberal attitude, which is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I humbly apologize. <laughs> um, has that, but you don't know if that's happened yet, huh? I don't know. I just noticed that a lot of people um, that I think like were pointing this out and were tweeting about it. And I, I think I think some from some white liberals, they don't have people like me in their circles, in their friend circles, so they don't really get it. But um, I, th I think I think some people do get it. And I'm not like and I promise I'm not trying to go after white people, but it is it is mostly white liberals who are putting this, this language out there. Uh, I have a question. Uh, has Gwyneth Paltrow weighed in on this one at all? In any way? No. Uh, she'll, by the way, she'll probably have. She'll probably come out with like some like moon dust to make the Texas uh, law go away. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was in a Ryan Murphy show uh, called The Politician, which I think I'm the only person in Chicago who's actually watched. Uh, and also in that show, little known fact, here's a trivia question for you guys at the Sun Times. This would be a good trivia question to ask at the meeting. What famous tennis player is also in The Politician? Romana? John McEnroe? No, you just named her already. Martina. Oh, Martina Navratilova. Navratilova. And let me just say this. She is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. I'm just going to say this. But she is one of the world's worst actors. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh. Anyway, let's move on. I just threw Martina under the bus. Uh, but she's a great tennis player. Uh, all right, so 9-11. You mentioned 9-11 already. Um, 20 years since 9-11. Uh, Do you have any just general reflections about it? Uh, you know, Where you were 20 years ago, where you are today, how the country has changed? 
Um, it's definitely, um, I can't believe it's been 20 years since that took place. I remember I was in between jobs. Um, I had been working for um, a community paper and <laughs> this is like a community paper in the North Shore. This a rich guy wanted to start a paper and someone that I knew from City News told me, why don't you just do it for a few months? And I'm like, do I really want to do this? But anyway, I, I just had just left the Tribune as a one-year resident. So I actually wasn't working at a daily paper when I was when 9-11 happened. So I remember I would come in a little later than like nine o'clock because it was a weekly paper. And I worked at this place for maybe a month or two months. So I remember I had the radio on and I have to admit I had I was just flicking stations and then I got onto Mancow. Sorry, I was listening to Mancow. And he said something about how some idiot drove his plane into the World Trade Center. So here I am thinking it's like a Cessna that just ran into the World Trade Center. So I didn't think anything of it. And so then I walk into my new, you know, my temporary workplace that I was in for like a few weeks and everybody's like, did you hear about the terrorist attack? And I'm like, what? And then, you know, we turn the TV on and then you hear about these two planes and you realize it's an American Airlines plane and a United Airlines plane. And I remember, so my younger sister was in college and I remember she was saying that, you know, people were like, do you hear about the terrorist attack? And they stopped classes. And my brother, I think, was in optometry school. And my dad actually was had jury duty that day. So I remember I called my mom and I told my mom, I'm like, tell daddy to come home ASAP because I thought something was going to happen in Chicago. So it was just a very ominous feeling. I remember just looking up in the sky the rest of the day and just not seeing any planes. And it was really eerie. And I remember somebody passing out like the afternoon edition of the Chicago Tribune, like in the streets. It was it was just unprecedented. We never thought anything like that this could happen. And then, you know, as Muslims, as the Muslim community, then we started hearing about like who the, you know, culprits were. And then things started to sink in as 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 this went on for a few days. I remember, the one thing I have to tell you, I mean, this is kind of funny. That just shows you. My mom, who's like four feet 11, she like went to Home Depot or some other place and she brings this like huge flag, like huge American flag. And she like plants it in front of her house like that week. And then we're just like, my, the flag was probably bigger than her. And then I remember my brother's like, um, so did you did you put that flag out there because you're scared or you're just like really patriotic all of a sudden? And I think a lot of um, Muslims were just kind of like freaked out about what the reaction was going to be. So I think that was my mom's reaction because she's not someone who's like a team, a go USA kind of person. I mean, she, she likes being an American. She, she's been here for since she was 18, but it was really funny. I mean, it was kind of comedic watching her trying to dig this flag into like a front lawn. <laughs> And she was like, you know, putting it and it was like probably bigger than like five feet. And so I don't even know how long we had that flag up in front. But, you know, a lot of us were talking um, about what it would mean for us in our community. And, you know, obviously with the Patriot Act and the way, you know, discussions have been about us. And we talked about the previous topic, um, just about the rhetoric that has kind of like bubbled up from that. It's it definitely changed our life 
and the way we were viewed. Of course, there was Islamophobia before 9-11, but it just got heightened after that. And um, everybody wanted us to apologize, which makes me really upset. It's like, I had nothing to do with it, but why should I apologize? And that's, that's a, the feeling that I had during the Trump years is the same feeling. It's a feeling that started like bubbling up inside of me. I'm like, how come, how come people who are related to like tons of Trump supporters don't have to apologize for their Trump supporting relatives? Yet every time something happens overseas, I'm expected to apologize for something. And I think at some point, I think there were people apologizing before. And then at some point, the newer generation, the millennial generation is like, we're not apologizing for anything that we had nothing to do with. So I think the dialogue, especially with the younger Muslim community has definitely changed. I think the older generation not even me, but a lot of the Gen X's, Gen, not Gen Xers, boomers were scared. And so they would be like, oh, we condemn this. We condemn this. And it's like, obviously, we do condemn it. But why do we have to always come out with a condemnation anytime anybody who follows the same religious religion as us has does something? So and, and I'm not saying this was a tragedy in many ways. I mean, there were so many people that lost their lives. And it was sad. It's not like something that you know, I'm an American too. I mean, watching all those lives, but for people to act like there weren't Muslims who died in 9-11 is really ignorant too, because there were Muslims. There was a first responder or two that were Muslim. There was a Muslim, there were Muslims on the plane. And so for, I think it, it just, I do think it created a lot, you know, in the beginning we're all like, oh, kumbaya, like, you know, everybody's holding hands. And, but then after that, I just felt a lot of ugliness came out and that ugliness hasn't gone. It's still there. You look at um, the way people like, like we're just talking about the Texas Taliban and the way people talk about, you know, Muslims. It's like it hasn't changed. You watch what was happening with Afghanistan as people leaving the country, the way, you know, a lot of people who see themselves on the right side of the discussion, the commentary for a lot of us was very Islamophobic. So I think a lot of people still don't know a lot about people who aren't like them. And I think people need to reach out. On the one hand, I do think people have reached out. There are a small segment of the population, but I think a lot more work needs to be done. Um, You know, the fact that it's been 20 years is, it's just mind boggling. I had a nephew who was uh, one at the time, he's going to be 21 in November. So it's just crazy. And, you know, my niece was a little girl. One of my, my oldest niece was a little girl and she's 27. And I have four other nieces and nephews, uh, and then, you know, on someone mixed side that they were born after 9-11. So make it my husband, as everyone knows. So, um, yeah, and they know a completely, they're, they, you know, they're reading about 9-11. They don't remember a world of 9-11. And so it's, it's been interesting just to see everybody's, um, you know, I'd like to see like what people are going to be talking about on Saturday. Um, I'm actually, it's really funny because I'm actually having a bunch of my girlfriends over for an outdoor um, beach party on Saturday. And, you know, a lot of us are brown. So I was kind of made this joke, like, I hope nobody thinks that we're celebrating 9-11. No. <laughs> so, like, I don't know, we were just laughing. I go, sorry, I, I was inviting my friends and I'm like, oh my God, sorry, it's 9-11. So hopefully nobody thinks they see us and they're like, oh God. What are these people doing? But I don't think they will. <laughs> I certainly hope not. Have, we, it's in Rogers Park, yeah. by the way. So there should be yeah. a little more tolerance. 
and while you'll be doing that with your friends, uh, your husband, the aforementioned Mr. Dumpke, and I will be at a football game together. How about that? Um, no, that's, that's my, my party's in the night. Mick will probably be napping in his room. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite part of any Ramana Hussein conversation, the part of the, part of the conversation where we throw Mick Dumpke under a bus. <laughs> Snapping, just saying what he's going to be doing. I know what he's going to be. Yeah, doing. he's exhausted for crying out loud. I um, that was uh, you that those last lines that you were talking about, which are really different uh, than actually what happened in nine eleven. Just but that point that, that the notion that something so traumatic and profound. Uh, is a demarcation and you can mark anything from that point on in your life. And then you think is, wow, 20 years have passed from that moment that I remember very clearly. And in certain ways, people are frozen in your mind from that time. You know what I'm saying? Like kids, by then I already had kids. Uh, and so the kids in their classroom, I remember being in the classroom with my daughters at the school uh, and my, so many of those kids are frozen in time at the, at, at the age they were. And it's so strange every day, yeah. uh, when you come on the show, uh, DJ Nate, uh, is the, uh, producer of the show. He wasn't literally in the class with my, uh, youngest daughter, but he's her age. So just follow this. Every time I look at DJ Nate, I could think about all the years that have passed between 9-11 and now, if you get what I'm saying. It's just, you're right. It just could freak you out if you think too much about it. I I got to tell you, uh, yeah. Ramana, you remember, when you said that Do you remember, well, one thing, yeah. Do you remember the conspiracy theory that came out about how Jewish people stayed at home that day? Do you remember oh that? Oh, my God. Like, well, really you weird. talk about, yeah. You t all right, I, I know we're going to tangent here, but you talk about- Sorry how well it I may mean, as well put it out there you talk about how muslims get blamed for everything i mean they <laughs> it, it wasn't that thing that wasn't next day they were already blaming jews on it and you know spike lee just had a take out of his documentary some nutcase conspiracy yeah. theorist talking all that stuff like it was the inside job and everybody knows what they're really saying and spike was like mm, I love Spike Lee to death, ladies and gentlemen. I've seen every single one of his movies, but even he had to re even he had to realize that that he was just giving voice to all this uh, anti Jewish hate. And it's yes, so of course I remember. Uh, it, let me tell you something that you may not know, but when anything bad happens, relate and a Jewish person is involved, like Jews everywhere are looking around like. Well, let's get, we're going to get blamed. Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff, one of the biggest con artists this country ever had. So, of course, every Jewish person in this country is responsible for Bernie Madoff, even though I like to point out most of the people conned by Bernie Madoff were themselves Jews, neither here nor there. So, um, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, Romano. When you say uh, Muslims everywhere are supposed to apologize for 9-11, even though, like, like, what did some kid in Lincolnwood have to do with, you know what I mean? It's just so preposterous. Uh, and yet that's where we are when you're a minority in this, when you're a minority everywhere, but particularly in this country, just kind of always looking over your shoulders. And that's just the reality. Uh, but no, you said something about it was all kumbaya afterwards. And I got to tell you, um, 
I wasn't really that comfortable in the aftermath with the Kumbaya. And I'll give you an example that still sticks with me. Get your thoughts on this. You're a Beatle fan. Um, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, one of the major radio networks, and I can't remember which one in this country, uh, temporarily banned playing Imagine by John Lennon, John Lennon's great song, Imagine. And Imagine, it, there's instinctual, like in a moment of crisis like that, you play Imagine because it's this utopian plea for a better world. Can you just imagine this world? Well, there's a line in that, um, in Imagine, uh, no heaven above us, you know what I mean? So it's there's it's it's sort of a, a I wouldn't say anti-religious, but it's invoking this notion that religion is problematic and the way it's used and abused. And they were like, no, we can't play Imagine. Uh, that's too controversial. I'm like, Imagine is too controversial? And that's where we were. That's just one small example of where we are at a country, as a country at that moment, I, we were attacked. So all Muslims had to apologize. Like, they did it. We couldn't play Imagine because it was too, what, PC? Too lovey, too lovey dovey, you know, too kumbaya, if you get what I'm saying. So, and within a, I don't know how long, two months, we were bombing Afghanistan. And within a year, we had launched a war in Iraq. So I didn't see a lot of kumbaya in the aftermath it, it of. Was, uh, it, it, it was, it was, it was very short lived and everyone was really sensitive. I, I should tell you, I was actually listening to a podcast. Um, Code Switch, which is one of my favorite NPR podcasts, on my run today, and Boots Riley, the artist, um, was actually had an album that came out before 9-11 where, you know, he was supposed to be showing how, like, his music was going against capitalism. And so there's a picture of the World Trade Center blowing up. And, you know, I think he, he had to, like, get rid of the album cover eventually. And But he... He was very brave. And the fact that he said that he was against, he didn't want anybody coming to his concert wearing red, white, and blue. And he didn't want, um, and he didn't support the war in Afghanistan or Iraq. And at that time, if you said that you were against, like, you know, bombing Afghanistan, people thought you're like, oh, you, you're, you're, you're siding with the terrorists. You're either with us or against them. That was like a common refrain. And everybody, one thing I could tell you, the Muslim community was not in love with Rudy Giuliani. And every single, every other American was like totally having a hard on for him, which we didn't understand. But it's interesting because he was like a hero. And, you know, maybe he was the way he handled it, but it was just kind of like, okay, I guess you like this guy. But it was just like everybody was like all of a sudden everything, you know, American was like wonderful and everybody that wasn't seen as American. And when I mean American, people who don't look brown or black was wonderful and everything that wasn't what people think of as American was terrible. That's the way that's the way people like me felt. Yeah, I got to tell you, once again. I don't know anybody in my family that ever liked Rudy Giuliani ever, <laughs> ever. Okay. I didn't even like him in nine 11. Uh, and then uh, later on, it turned out that the police and fire unions of New York turned against him, uh, because he was so indifferent to the needs of the first responders and, uh, what they suffer, how they suffer the long-term health consequences. So 
That dude's been evil from the get-go. By the way, uh, here's another question uh, for a trivia question, uh, Boots Riley. Name Boots Riley, the movie he directed, Roman Hussein, go. Oh, God. It was the one about, um, it's a question. I know the movie's a question, a question form. I forgot. Uh, that was I a trick. I, I pulled that out of nowhere, but uh, he's a. That's about that guy. It's, who works uh, it's called. Sorry. Sorry yes. to bother you. Very good. That's good enough. Sorry to bother you. I, I just want to say, Putrell is a great leftist, and uh, he is. He, he's like a Marxist. He's like out there, uh, Boots Riley, and um, so he's. Uh, he, I can. Sh- I can assure you, he uh, Boots Riley was definitely not supporting Rudy Giuliani at that moment. Uh, all right, I. Um, let's move on from 9-11 and talk about a story you edited. And uh, this is sort of the story of the week in the Sun-Times. A sh- uh, mighty shout out to the Sun-Times. This will be the third time we've discussed it on the show. It's a very provocative article. I urge everybody uh, uh, to read it. I did not know that you uh, had um, uh, edited. Matt Hendrickson actually wrote it. Uh, so shout out to Matt Hendrickson. And it has to do with... Uh, a dispute between police and prosecutors in the city of Chicago. This is a dramatic uh, turn from where we ha- what we have been talking about. But I'd just love to get your thoughts on this. Ramon Hussein, as longtime listeners know, for years was a criminal court reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. So you know how the game is played down there uh, and at California. Uh, and so in this article, it talks about the conflicts between police who want uh, prosecutors to make charges in really high-profile murder cases and the prosecutors for Kim Fox state's attorney office are reluctant to make those prosecutions because they don't believe they have the evidence. Uh, and they just don't want to charge somebody if they can't, if they, if they first of all, don't think that the person is actually guilty uh, for certainly guilty and that they could, uh, convince a jury of that, uh, very provocative story, very interesting story, uh, very revealing story in my uh, estimation, Romana, about the split right now between police officers or some police officers, some detectives, uh, and prosecutors for Kim Fox. Why don't you go into a little more detail uh, and talk about how unique this is uh, for um, it to come out in the open as it did. Yeah, this was, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So sadly, this seven-year-old girl, Serena, Serenity Broughton, I hope I'm pronouncing her name um, correctly. Seven-year-old girl was shot in Belmont, Cragen in mid-August. Her younger sister, only six, was also shot, but the six-year-old survived. Serenity passed away. And obviously, this is a big case because you have two little girls who were shot. Anyway, this case is going on. Detectives are working on the case, and they seem to be honing in on a suspect. And the state's attorney's office told them to hold off on this. And the information we got is actually based on what we got from our sources and a memo that was released to us. I don't know if it was by the state's attorney's office, but it's the state's attorney's memo. And this is how we know the play-by-play. So the state's attorney's office told police that they wanted us them to hold off on arresting the suspect. And, you know, they charged the sus- they arrested the suspect anyway. And if anybody knows, it's the state's attorney's office that normally charges someone with a crime. The police arrest and the state's attorney's office charge someone with a crime. So anyway, they're, this is last week. They're sitting, the state's attorney's um, office and the police are meeting. And the state's attorney's office basically said that 
they need more on this person that they had, the cops had arrested before they charge them. They're like, we don't have enough to charge this person, but why don't you guys go back and do more digging, do more investigation, get more evidence against this guy? Because they said that we don't have burden or proof because they want to make sure that they have enough evidence before they charge someone. So according to the memo, um, the detective that worked on the case said that he was just tired of working on this case. He wanted to see his kids. And from what I read in the memo, it seemed like that detective was like, you know what, just don't charge the guy. And so then, you know, then the prosecutors are like, well, it seemed like the prosecutors didn't want to charge this guy because they didn't think they had enough evidence. And police, from what I got from the memo, is didn't want to didn't want to go do more investigation. And they were just like, okay, forget it. Forget it. We don't want charges on this guy. Meanwhile, after this happens, one of a top police official, uh, a commander, called a prosecutor and said, hey, can you just do us a favor? Morale is really bad. We need this guy charged. And this is the person in question that was arrested for the seven-year-old, seven-year-old's murder. And the prosecutor said, hey, you know, we just, we really need Area 5 detectives to step up and, you know, they need to do more investigation. And so, you know, they had a conversation, went on. Then it turns out Friday, this is um, about a week ago, there was police went to a judge and asked if they could circumvent the state's attorney's office and charge the offense, the suspect directly. So as I explained before, the state, the prosecutors in Illinois are the ones who charge someone with a crime and police arrest. And that's like normally what happens. But if police feel like they've exhausted all avenues with the prosecutors and they feel like they can circumvent the state's attorneys, they can charge someone directly. And that rarely happens. So this happened be behind the state's attorney's back. And we got the memo and we decided to do a story with it because it shows you the tension that's between the police and state's attorney Kim Fox's office. And one of the things that we things that we were told, according to the story, the suspect who was arrested was seen sitting in a car where two other people ran to after the shots were fired in this August 15th murder. But none of the people were seen with weapons. So that's what we got from the state's attorney's office. It seemed like that's the evidence that was taken. And the police said that, you know, the state's attorneys told the police to keep going with the case. And they said, interview this witness. And the detective that I talked about earlier, who said that he was tired and just said, you know, just don't charge him, forget it. He apparently said that there's no way they're going to get that witness. So he felt like it was a lost cause. Anyway, we published the story. It does illustrate the tension between the state's attorney's office and police and the frustrations that police are feeling. But we've gotten definitely a lot of um, negative comments about the story since we posted, especially, especially by police officers and a lot of people who feel that police are getting the short shrift um, and feel that the state's attorney's office isn't charging people with the crime. But according to the memo, I mean, again, I'm going based on what information we were given. They didn't say like, oh, just drop the charges completely, they were saying that more investigation needs to be done. Now, do I know if this suspect was guilty or not? I don't know. But based on what 
the state's attorney's office was told. And I don't know, because, you know, we did try calling the police as well, and we got very little information. They said the investigation is ongoing. If all you have is a person sitting in a car where people were running to and nobody was seen with weapons, you want to make sure that you have enough evidence against someone before you charge them. And so that's what the state's attorney's argument was. So it's definitely an interesting case. And I thought Matt did a very good job on reporting the story. He actually got, um, was telling me some about this last week. And uh, the state's attorney's office said that if police were going to go behind their back and charge this guy, they were going to, not behind their back, because one, the higher commander said that there were the police planned to charge this guy. Um, so they said that their plans was if this case did come to bond court, they were just going to drop the charges right there. So that shows you that there is definitely a disconnect between two of those um, entities. Yeah, like I said, very uh, revealing story, very powerful story. And I'm not surprised you got the kind of reaction that you did. And that uh, let's just think about it. I, we did a deeper dive, if folks are interested, about uh, on this with uh, Adolfo Mondragon, a, uh, a lawyer here in the city of Chicago. He has some very passionate views on it. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a very serious crime. I mean, all murders obviously are serious, but uh, when a seven-year-old is killed, uh, it is. It just exposes uh, a, a larger dysfunction in the city of Chicago. That's just it's frightening and it's unacceptable. And it would you think that absolutely everybody in the city of Chicago would think of this as a um, a moment when we must come together to go back to the kumbaya theme. Uh, and figure out what we could do, one, to make sure it never happens again, and two, to find the person who did it or is responsible uh, and hold him or her accountable. Uh, and instead, what we seem to be is fighting the same old fights we've always fought, and everything gets turned into uh, this larger political gotcha debate. And, um, yeah, and so I guess we're supposed to, the next time there's some horrific murder uh, we're supposed to pretend how shocked we are. And, you know, and I, I, it's easy to be flippant about this, Romana, but man, I just, you and I talk so much about uh, Justice Smollett in that case and how that seized the interests of people in the city of Chicago and the, the length that police investigators went to to prove that uh, Jesse was full of it, which, by the way, he is full of it. I'll say it. It's a, my opinion. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just like, why is Jesse Smollett considered such an important matter? You know, what did Kim Fox know and when did she know it? Let's examine this for the 50,000th time. And this is not. You know what I'm saying, Romano? Is saying, I just, I read that story. And again, I give a, a shout out to the Sun Times because that was probably not an easy story to run. Uh, and I just, I don't, I, we're lost, man. You know, we talk, I talk about national politics a lot, Romano, but here in the city of Chicago, it's hard not to be fatalistic about where we are when you get, we spend so much time investigating Jesse Smollett and that silly made up story, cockamamie story he cooked up. And yet, I don't know, this one, do you follow what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, the yeah, I, I the definitely... cops can't get it together. I definitely think Jesse Smollett is a case that we do have to follow for the reasons 
not because of Jussie Smollett, but because of what happened in the state's attorney's office. But that doesn't mean that other cases are important as well. And as a community, we should care more about cases or disagreements or what happens in the state's attorney's office, what happens in the police department when there's a dead child involved. This is obviously more important. And I do think, you know, there are obviously a lot of bad actors in the police department, but there are police officers who do want to solve the crime. And there are people in the state's attorney's office who do want to charge the right person. So there are people on all sides who do want to solve this, but it is something that, you know, we should be paying attention to. And this story should be more important than the Jesse Smollett story in the scheme of things. But everybody likes the Jesse Smollett story. They like, you know, the D-list actor more than, you know, <laughs> crime stories. Yeah. Well, it is true. I mean, a lot of people like animal stories more than, you know, stories about dead children. And I'm not saying that animal stories aren't important, but, you know, those are the ones getting hits and then nobody cares about the other stuff. And I'm not saying nobody cares about it, but, you know, a lot of what we cover, even as a journalist, it's like, wow, that's getting a lot of hits. Let's keep going with this story. And there are days where I don't think Jesse Smollett coming to court and whatever happens in court deserves coverage or a story. And some of my, my colleagues disagree because it gets a lot of hits. And so I do think that sometimes even journalists are at fault for what stories we highlight and what we don't. And I'm saying this as someone who works at the Sun-Times, and we do care about the Jesse Smollett story. But I can tell you personally, a dead child to me is more important than the Jesse Smollett case. Absolutely. All right, we'll move on from that one. Uh, and we'll close with Romana's recommendations. Uh, I have been obsessively following two shows that Romana hasn't had an opportunity to watch yet. So I'm going to hold off on a deep dive discussion of the Lewinsky uh, Clinton impeachment series by Ryan Murphy, which I'm utterly obsessed with and talking nonstop about it on this show with every guest. Uh, every guest is required <laughs> to watch it. Uh, but Ram Romana hasn't got it. It's only one episode, so you can catch up really fast, Romana. And then the other one is uh, Only Murders in the Building, which I'm utterly, I love that. It's such a relief. Uh, so uh, the comedy uh, with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez. So what's your recommendation, Romana, since uh, we can't discuss the shows I've been watching? Go ahead. Well, well, I did watch The Chair. As I told you, it's about academia. Um, I had some issues with it, but overall I thought it was good. Um, so I do recommend that. That's on Netflix. And I, I know everybody else has been telling me to watch Ted Lasso forever. And I just started that last week. And um, Mick, my husband, is watching it with me for now. And he, he, was, he was looking at me the other day and goes, why would you want to watch a show like this? It doesn't seem like your kind of show. Because it's about, a, it's, like, it's about a football coach who goes to England to coach a soccer team by this woman who owns a soccer club who got, you know, who, whose husband used to own the team and he cheated on her and she just wants the team to fail. So she hires this guy, but I've seen two episodes so far and I think it's pretty good. And then I know we talked about this, but we can have a deep dive on this later because I'm such a big Beatles fan, but I did watch the six part Hulu documentary with Paul McCartney and that um, music producer where they really go into like they dissect the Beatles songs and, you know, 
the way they were made and yeah and you told me you have to be a Beatles fan to watch that and I could see what you mean by that because I don't know if I'd want to watch that kind of documentary about most musicians because you know they go they're, they're going into the recording studio and they're showing the different in, you know um you know musical instruments they used and how they did things and how their you know fame producer you know god why am i blanking on his name rick rubin not rick, rick rubin Ru the beatles the beatles oh george um, martin george martin yeah because he's such a big name and you know and I, I, my favorite part, I have to admit, I did like those parts, but I did like it when Paul McCartney was talking about himself and the Beatles. And a lot of things I did know is because I was, I'm a big Beatles fan. I even went to Liverpool many years ago to, and did a Beatles tour. So I, you know, I did the whole thing where I saw all the places they mentioned, like Strawberry Field and Penny Lane. I saw all their homes and hung around, hung out at Liverpool for a day. So yeah, the Beatles are just, one of those bands where I can listen to over and over again. So if you're a Beatles fan, I would recommend um, the documentary and, you know, there's, there's going to be a Beatles. There's like more Beatles movies in the woodwork. I think people kick, I don't know. I, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me, which is fine. Cause I don't expect everybody to like the Beatles, but I feel like they're the one band that it's like, you think the movies are over, but they keep coming out. Um, what am I, I should say one, a, a woman that I went to, um, Great. This is another famous Lincolnwood person, by the way, Christine Feldman Barrett. She is a professor in Australia. Now, this is a um, woman I went to grade school and high school with. And she teaches like she teaches pop culture in Australia. She lives in Australia now, but she wrote this book about women, women and the Beatles. And she's been on a couple of podcasts since because she posts on Facebook and and she's like, God, I wish I knew that you were a bit, big Beatles fan. I would have interviewed you for the book. So it's like an academic book. And she's been on a lot of Beatles podcasts. And I've been listening to her talk about her book because she's going on these different tours. I'm waiting for the book to go in paperback because it's like 50 bucks right now. So I'm like hoping she can autograph it for me when she comes back to town. And she, I, I've been watching her Facebook posts about it. We should do a show. With her, we. I, I'm, I'm gonna. That's your next assignment. Oh, poor Ramada. I don't want to say You don't pay me for this. No, get her. That I think it would be a blast to have the three of us because I'm an obsessive Beatles fan. You love the Beatles, uh, and she clearly trumps both of us. So it'd be yeah. like just total Beatle freakdom. I think that would be a great show, uh, and I'm gonna be bugging you, poor Ramada. I'm gonna be bugging her to get that. You get that lady from Newton. <laughs> yeah from, uh, I'll, ask her. I'll ask her yeah and we were we were friendly in school like she was a punk like she was like she was really punk and but she liked me and my friends because you know we were like children me and my friends were all children of immigrants and you know like considered nerds but you know she was like someone that was totally different so she was always cool with me and you know I knew she was like someone that was like hanging out at Medusa's was which is a juice bar and she'd be going out clubbing and stuff so well, well it, to that cool point thing. we're still in touch yeah all right, well, I'll, that's your assignment. Uh, I'm gonna be, okay. and I will be bugging you about it. But to that point, um, I'll close by recommending, uh, I'll briefly talk about it on Hulu Plan B, which I think you'll really love, uh, and it gets into a lot of the issues about a woman's right to choose. I don't want to give too much of the movie away. Uh, it's a very funny teen sex comedy, uh, in addition to making a powerful point about reproductive rights, but the lead actress who is unbelievable why this woman doesn't get an oscar i don't know i think she, she killed it she is the classic 
uh, nerdy that you always talk about, a daughter of an immigrant whose best friend is a high-charging punker. And so, like, you will relate to this uh, movie on many levels. And and it's Indian-American immigrant in two, and so there's this, like, recurring joke about the India mafia, which I'm sure you will get a lot more than most people will get. Uh, so Maybe. just for, uh, well, no, not India mafia as in they're mobsters, but wherever you go, oh, you like can't escape. Yes. Oh it's yeah. Like yeah. you go into a store and the guy behind the counter is Indian and you know, Oh no. And it's, it just takes place in, uh, in South Dakota or North Dakota. So like in her mind, yeah, you know, all this, the Indians. Yeah. Every Indian knows every other Indian. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh no, yeah. I'm blown. My cover is blown. Anyway, <laughs> that was my that was my parents' experience when they first moved here, and mine too. Yeah, every Indian knows every other Indian. Plan B is the name of the movie. All right, Ramana, uh, thanks again uh, for taking the time uh, to talk to us. Ramana Hussein, every other week of the Ben Jarofsky Show. It's always a blast talking to you. And don't forget your assignment. Get your friend, the Beatle uh, author, to join us, all right? Okay. All right, very good. That's Ramana Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Thank you.